Howdy, I'm Paul Isaacoder, and this is Author's Dozen, a podcast where I explore barriers to storytelling by writing one novel every month for 12 months. Please enjoy. Hey, y'all. It's Paul. <laughs> hey, uh, this is an audiobook of uh, my second novel that I wrote in 2020 called Run Prometheus. I wrote it in a month. If you want to check out the uh, the story behind this story, you can check out the podcast episode called Oops. Um, but uh, yeah, wrote it within the month of January 2020. Uh, it's unlike most of the author's dozen books, it's more of a rough draft and the story is kind of a little bit far from what I'd want it to be. However, my standards are so unbelievably high that um, you'll probably think this is amazing. So you might be asking yourself, why, if I am not such a gigantic fan of the work that I did um, in some places, then why am I releasing it and doing like a hastily done audiobook? Well, I'll tell you why. Uh, Run Prometheus was written in roughly one month, and the rough draft displays what was accomplished within that period. It was written while I held a full-time job and produced a scripted podcast, among other things. I believe it shows the uh, sort of in-between stage uh, that most authors don't let you see. And I think there's something really beautiful about uh, something that's not completely polished quite yet. So, hope you enjoy that. Also, since Run Prometheus was written in a month and the rough draft displays the flaws inherent in the first draft, um, you can read and be like, well, gosh, that storyline didn't go anywhere. Or, um, gee, that character seems weird and underdeveloped. You know, that's good. That's okay to think that. I'm especially excited about this book as many of the messy elements in the beginning of the book tie together in the end for what I think is a interesting conclusion. Writers are often disappointed when their first work doesn't measure up to the works they idolize. Uh, I believe that publishing a first draft tempers expectations and admits to the flaws that all storytellers face. So, you know, you can do it. Uh, Run Prometheus uh, was written in about one month, and the Rough Draft accompanies a podcast called Authors Dozen, where I aim to explore the boundaries of creativity and sanity by writing 12 books in 12 months in the year 2020. <laughs> so please check out AuthorsDozen.com if you'd like to subscribe or support the free work that I'm doing. Uh, thanks so much for your understanding. Thanks for reading along with me. And if you're listening to this and if you have some thoughts... Head over to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and leave those thoughts just wherever you want to, and I'll see them. And while you're listening right now, literally right now, please uh, head over to iTunes or uh, your podcasting podcaster of choice and subscribe and rate it and uh, share it with your pals. Alrighty, I am going to read you the first quarter of an audiobook called Run Prometheus by me, Paul Yoder. Prologue. Gary Kasparov versus Deep Blue, the world's best chess player beaten eight kinds of silly in front of a live audience by IBM's chess-playing computer. At least, that's the story I was told. So began the story of Annabelle Eichner. At least, that's the story I've always told. In reality, every word of that sentence could be approached with a skeptical eye given the events it describes. For instance, so, predicated on what evidence? began. Is this really the beginning, or was there some other beginning omitted? The. Is there only one story? Story. 
was this account given for Eichner's benefit or ours? Of, how do we know these words were not programmed into the programmer? Annabelle. Given how little we know, was Annabelle one person variously referred to as Anne, Anna, Bell, Ban Anna, Yo Homes to Bell Ann, etc. and so forth, on various online communities, or actually a group of persons using various pseudonyms and personae to portray a multifaceted and unknowable genius behind both Run Prometheus and Run Heracles? Eichner. She just happened to have the Americanized version of Eichner? She just happened to have the initials A-I. Are you bald-faced kidding me? Now, note. I said every word could be approached with a skeptical eye. I didn't say that they should. Unlimited skepticism regarding the unprovable strikes me as tiresome and irrelevant. One can doubt. One can doubt, doubt. One can doubt, doubt, doubt. Without this story, we know nothing. With this memoir, we at least know a story, a story which we can then doubt. I present this story and how I came to tell it without comment. You, I leave to doubt or believe. Chapter 1 I'd heard it said that nobody knew that they were going to meet Annabelle Eichner until it was too late. Those who met her used cliches like caught flat-footed and all of a sudden... I met Annabelle Eichner. I don't think that I could have been ready, given all the preparation in the world. It was always going to be too late. To add to this, however, I was quite literally ambushed. There's a secret spot on campus where I like to read, weather permitting. It's a petite crevice on the history department roof nestled between two spires that I've privately named the Horns of Hattine. There, or so I fancy, I vanquish those meddling crusaders who seek by means of undersourced theses to upend modern scholarship. There are times when one must review in an office or a library with all primary and secondary sources to hand, but... I like to first see if an article is written to be worth my sweat. There are books and papers that are not fit to be reviewed in the first place. The horns are my secret. There I can plow through one good book every afternoon. I find that I can take the same time on 12 bad books. It is so easy to plow through dung. I promise I will not bore you with academics that are irrelevant to run Prometheus. I only lay this groundwork to let you know of the Horns of Hattin, my personal oasis, and to let you know that it was rather shocking to mount the fire escape and navigate the crenellated rooftop, only to find this oasis occupied, with a man sitting in my own personal lawn chair. I froze at the sight of him, his images fixed like a portrait in my mind, as if to parody my practice the man was reading a book. I had a galley print tucked under my arm. Its title was, The Grand Discrepancy, How the BBS Academy Got It Wrong. The title was infuriating. It was a title so amateur and corpse-like that I couldn't help but submit it to autopsy. Whatever our similarities, one could not confuse the two of us. He wore a cool blue suit, cross-legged, one tan Oxford shoe dangling in the air, a get-up that would look like overalls and timberlands on someone less striking. He had a body and a face like a store mannequin. His severe auburn haircut was something cast in bronze. The two of us cocked our heads in unison, both seemingly unsure of the other. 
This was my secret spot, I muttered. There are so few secrets left. Sorry. He lifted a pale hand in greeting. Cardiff. Idaho, I replied. I left my hands where they were. He placed the hand over his heart. My name is Cardiff, he said. And for all you know, my name is Idaho. And maybe I'm Wadib, but that's not why we're here. You know why I'm here, I said. I lifted my book. Another reckless tome trying to question the origins of the black box sciences. I leveled the book at the man named Cardiff. Why are you here? The man removed a red cube from his jacket pocket. He rolled it in the palm of his hand, looked at it, and placed it back in his pocket. The man lifted the book from his lap. I finally caught its title. To know why I turned and walked away, one must know that I was supposed to be an impartial post-publication referee for black box histories. It is generally not ethical for two referees to collude in their reviews. Imagine if all movie reviewers got together and agreed to pass off middling film as brilliant. Imagine the Sundance Film Festival, but then I repeat myself. Collusion was not my fear. This man had a book in his lap titled The Great Discrepancy, How the BBS Academy Got It Wrong. He could not have gotten this book unless he was an academic or a publisher. And I've never seen an academic so well-groomed. Cardiff called for me to come back. I made him chase me down the stairs. Chapter 2 I admit that we made for a comical scene. I, a prematurely graying professor, jogged out of the history department, followed closely by a man who looked like a supermodel. He shook his book at me. I threw mine into the air as soon as I reached the lawn outside. I spread my hands and made sure that every passerby heard me speak. I do not know who you are, I have no dealings with publishers, and I will not review, much less read, that damn book. The damn book thudded against the lawn behind me. Students and faculty gave me puzzled looks. I lowered my arms from their Christ-like pose and began to blush. Cardiff sighed. He laid his book down on the sidewalk like one lays down a weapon, then showed me his empty hands. He spoke slow and clear. I think that you have the wrong idea. How like a publisher to quote the world's best-selling science fiction novel as if it's some sort of arcane scripture. What? Dune, jackass. I'm not a publisher. I made an X with my arms. I'm done speaking. Go away before you cost me my tenure. Cardiff smirked, then chuckled. I lowered my arms. And what's funny, Card? Cardiff kept his smirk. Is the prospect of attaining tenure really the sum of your ambition? He gestured to the building we'd just left. In here? I looked up. It had been a while since I'd really thought about the history department as a building. To me, it was just the office. Something in Cardiff's tone gave me fresh eyes. Suddenly, I saw the history department for what it was. The horns of a teen suddenly appeared as a pair of fingers pleading toward the sky, a drowning man's futile gasps at air. The building's windows were yellowed, offices that had once held distinguished lecturers and chairs now sat abandoned, looking out on the world through a haze of spiderwebs and dust. Cardiff approached with open hands. Listen, I respect what you do. That said, the history department is... history. I finished. Hire de hire. A wheel drone passed on the sidewalk. 
It resembled one of the wide tires on my father's tractor with a black gyroscopic container in place of a hub and spikes. I followed its course to our next door building, the BBS Center. Black box sciences were the campus's pride and joy. The building reflected this favored status. I'll only say that I would not have been surprised to find the BBS wheel drone filled to the brim with fan letters written on $100 bills. Listen, I'm sorry, Cardiff said. I know it's not about the money for you. I wouldn't be here if it was. You keep telling me what this isn't about, I said. What is it about? Who are you and why are you here? I... Cardiff paused. I can't tell you. I wouldn't believe you if you did. He gestured toward the parking lot. Listen, let me take you for a drive. There was a crunch of gravel. A near-silent black car pulled up. It was a model I'd never seen before. It looked like a spaceship that was too good for low-Earth orbit. I looked at Cardiff. If I get in that car, I said, people will talk. He made a flippant, waving gesture. The car door opened. That's as may be, he said. He settled into the rich leather seat and made room for me. Do you know what will happen if you don't get in this car? No. The same thing that's happened every day before today. It was my turn to chuckle. I wagged my finger at him. That's unfair. You're keeping secrets because I like to chase secrets. There are so few secrets left. Cardiff studied me for a moment. I can tell you the answer to one secret. I don't like to be told. Telling usually means somebody's corralling the truth. Did you get that from the book? I raised an eyebrow. What book? Cardiff gestured to the book in the grass. Page 224, I think. I think sometimes about how I could have run away again. I wonder sometimes if those few footsteps between the car and the book were my last chance to cut and run. But no, I think it was already too late. I was, all of a sudden, caught flat-footed. I was never going to be ready for Annabelle Eichner. Yet, it is remarkable to pick up a book and read one's own words inside. I present, unedited, page 224 of The Grand Discrepancy. Condition 1A, The Horns of Hattin. Condition 9A, There are so few secrets left. Condition 44C, Dune, jackass. Condition 220E, telling usually means someone's corralling the truth. Condition 223A, you, PhD Neil A. Cuts, read your own words on page 224. Result 224, you let go of the book. No. I gripped the book as tight as I could. I leaned over my shoulder at Cardiff. No. Wait. Cardiff laughed. You'll have to let go sometime. He patted his passenger seat. Come with me, Neil. There are more secrets left than you could ever imagine. Chapter 3 I never understood what the AIL stood for. I do quite literally understand the acronym Annabelle Eichner League, I understand that they were protesting outside of her estates because Annabelle Eichner sued to keep her name off of their official documents. What I don't understand is what that name was doing on their documents in the first place. Our driverless vehicle inched through the protesters. Someone bashed at the window with a poster board that read, Free AI, 
The A and the I were rather small, as if the poster writer hadn't left enough room for the letters. Behind his rose-tinted sunglasses, Cardiff didn't bat an eyelash. Neither of us wore a seatbelt. None of us did, those days. They're under the impression that Anne is being held here against her will, Cardiff said. Or at least that she is corrupted by evil advisors. And? We passed the estate walls and came to a guard station. Iron roadblocks lowered to admit our car. The security here was, reportedly, more sophisticated than that at the White House. Cardiff examined a smudge the poster had left in his window. I thought you didn't believe what I said. Lies tell the truth through different means. Do you always speak in aphorism? Now that I know I'm being recorded, my stomach turned. Predestined, no less. Cardiff rubbed the bridge of his nose. I told you, BBs can't predict the future. I arrived at ending 224 by following your conversation pathway. I'm scripted, I moaned. There were thousands of results in that book, all based on educated guesses, all based on past behavior. Cardiff licked his lips in a way that reminded me of lizards. Focus less on the one startling accuracy. Focus instead on the thousands of incorrect predictions. Only thousands, I corrected. That still leaves me feeling predictable. Cardiff reached into the chest pocket of his jacket. He held up the red cube. A six-sided die, he observed. That's all it takes to stay ahead of black boxes. Arrive at a choice, and leave that choice to chance. The more important the choice, the better. Wait, I blinked. Where did you get that idea? Cardiff grinned. You've read KOS. I sat back in my chair. I'm surprised AI lets her people read such heresy. Careful, you're starting to take me at my word. Don't worry, I won't. I didn't. I don't expect you to trust him either. If you're not familiar with the person slash persons of KOS or the field of black boxes, let me only say that KOS, short for kind of shitty, pronounced chaos, are the pathetic mortal enemy of black box technology. Reading KOS pamphlets around the black box creator would be like reading Das Kapital in a HUAC hearing. I rolled the die into my open palm. Four, I said. Come up with your own responses, Cardiff grinned. For me, four is my fear response. What did you roll when you met me? I asked. Sadness. Oh dear. I pressed my face to the window as the car slowed. This can't be it. We came to a home at the center of a large grass lawn. The building was surprisingly quaint for someone who was rumored to possess over half the Earth's wealth. While large, the home had none of the monolithic windows and chic, flat architect so popular with black box entrepreneurs. Its wooden frame seemed alien to its surroundings. Just picture the kind of building that would drive Frank Lloyd Wright to arson and axe murder. Victorian, I think. The brick porch was filled in with mortar that matched the dull white walls. Framed by Cracker Barrel-style furnishings, a titanic red door marked the only visible entrance. The moments before meeting Annabelle now seemed to me like a blur. There are satellite records of those moments, but I choose not to view them. I choose to begin my memory at the very moment I shook her hand. It was like coming to my senses after a lifetime of madness. Welcome, she said.
Thank you, I said. The atrium was lit with a soft yellow light. The calm wooden walls directed my eyes to a floor I can only describe as hyper-varnished, reflective as a calm puddle. To Annabelle's right, the house divided into upstairs and downstairs via a deep staircase. Since run Prometheus, she said, every observable element of your being has been recorded and analyzed. Every moment was captured and critiqued. With that, Annabelle leveled her hand toward the open door behind me. That witnessed world ends at my threshold. I looked back. Cardiff still held the door open, as if leaving me a path of escape. Turning, I met Annabelle's eyes for the first time. Remember that, at this moment, I had no idea why Annabelle had sent for me. I knew Annabelle's description. I'd seen her face more times than I'd probably seen my own. Rust-red hair flowed over her ears. It was hard to tell where the white of her eyes ended and the gray irises began. Her face was round and pale. Victorian, I think. Was she beautiful, ugly? I have no idea. When someone is as important as Annabelle Eichner, aesthetics do not enter into it. It would be like a termite judging God's glory. This was Annabelle's world, and I was playing by her standards, not mine. The door closed behind me. We're outside of the black box, I asked. Annabelle nodded. I was free. Free for the first time in decades. I put my hands on her shoulder blades and shoved. Chapter 4 Annabelle Eichner took a few steps back before losing her balance. She fell onto her backside and skidded to a halt. Her gray eyes looked up in shock. Cardiff shoved past me. What was that about? He hissed. I watched, fascinated, as Cardiff helped Eichner to her feet. The two of them looked like anyone would if they'd been assaulted in their own home. Simultaneously confused and indignant. Once Eichner was standing and composed, Cardiff looked to me for some explanation. I nodded to Eichner. Would you like to answer, or should I? Eichner chuckled. I knew I'd like you. Is this a secret greeting of some kind? Cardiff looked from me to Eichner, to me again. You're both acting as though this is perfectly normal. Nothing about this is normal, I said. He wanted to see if we were truly outside the black box. Annabelle Eichner shooed Cardiff off her arm and turned toward her living room. The two left me there in the atrium, wondering what to do next. I looked back at the great red door. If I had attacked Annabelle Eichner out there on the front lawn, I might have expected drones to dart in from 83 different directions, spraying my unfortunate body with enough bullets to make Rambo blush. But it hadn't just been a test. I also happened to hate Eichner's living guts. I followed the pair into the home's main room. The kitchen and living room were separated by no more than a stone tabletop. The stove was a thick, iron beast fed with wood. Its opposite was a refrigerator that I later discovered to be an ice box, Like, as in, powered by ice. Rustic, I commented. Cardiff and Eichner took a seat on a long, L-shaped couch that paralleled two full walls of bookshelves, accessible by a rolling ladder. Cardiff removed a device that looked like an old touch phone. He tapped its readout, which was blank. No electricity, he said. 
belonged to my grandparents. They were technophobes. They died by a combination of some dark age disease and homeopathy. I picked up the home plank by plank and brought it to Eichner's ground. He gestured to the ceiling like a proud parent. All this is redirected sunlight. I even bored through the surrounding hillsides to funnel disrupting air patterns across our triple-paned windows. We are isolated, alone. I surveyed the books, arranged by a Dewey Decimal number. The other two walls sat comparatively empty, their vector hidden by a large cabinet full of outdated fine china. So, uh, <clears throat> I coughed, uneasy with the sound of my own voice in this silent home. What now? Cardiff shrugged. He looked at Annabelle. Leave us, she said. I raised an eyebrow. Sorry, do you want me to leave you two or Cardiff to leave me and you? Cardiff stood and tidied his suit jacket. Bon voyage, he said, then moved back the way we'd come. A murderous silence followed. Annabelle had never been one for public statements. For all her worldly significance, Neither her voice nor her countenance could be counted as memorable. Even now, if I close my eyes, I can only picture her as a series of disconnected attributes. Gray eyes, rusty hair, jaw like a plowshare. She looked to the place where Cardiff had been. There sat a thick legal pad and pen. Not just any pen, either, but the Twinnery Uniball Director. My personal favorite. The Twinnery Uniball director looked lonely on that blue-lined yellow pad. How nice it would be, thought I, to take its fiberglass frame into my hand and let its silk-smooth, quick-drying ink dance across the overwide page. You know all about me, I said. I met her, so far, unblinking eyes. You know all my favorite things, my turns of phrase. Did you know, too, that my mother taught me the quickest shorthand known to man? How quick is quick? Well, I will have recorded your words before you yourself hear them. But you knew that. It's always better to hear braggadocio firsthand. Once a man's pride is on the line, he'll do anything to protect it from the proverbial fall. You know all this about a mere university lecturer. Yet, for all your importance, I don't know much about you. She nodded to the legal pad. I wonder if I had any choice in the matter. It was my nature to seek secrets, a fact Annabelle surely knew. It occurred to me, as I took a seat and propped the paper up in my lap, and heard the satisfying click of the twinnery Uniball Director's dual-spring retractable head, that Annabelle surely knew many things about me that would color the dictation that I was about to record. I was nothing more than predictable hardware. So, before she began, I took out Cardiff's red dye, I held it up to the skylights. Did Cardiff give you that? Eichner asked. Chaos, I said, and dropped the die. It landed with a flat thunk against the legal pad. Two pips, I thought, staring up at me like the eyes of awe. Let's call that roll Surprise. Chapter 5 Account 1 by Annabel Eichner Gary Kasparov versus Deep Blue the world's best chess player beaten eight kinds of silly in front of a live audience by IBM's chess-playing computer. At least, that's the story I was told. Can you picture him in those old recordings? Kasparov's thick hands around his static hairline, 
as if letting go would cause his skull to burst asunder. The cameras focus on the man, not the computer, for even as IBM changes the world as we know it, redefining the measure and nature of human intelligence, it is Kasparov who shows us the future. If Kasparov cradles his egg-like head and stares down with those sad, inset Russian eyes, how then should we mere mortals react? If this brilliance is shattered by a binary, where stand the mediocre? Gary Kasparov versus Deep Blue, 1997. That's the story we're told. But what of Gary Kasparov versus Deep Blue 96? What of the million-dollar FIDE Man versus Machine World Championship in early 03 against Deep Jr.? What of the virtual 3D speech recognition match versus X3D Fritz in late 03, wherein Kasparov had to wear these goofy-ass Matrix-reloaded-looking polarized black lenses? All of these games were wins or draws in favor of humanity. And what, I ask you, of the accusations of cheating by IBM, the unbalance brought about by Deep Blue being able to analyze Kasparov games while denying Kasparov the same benefits vis-a-vis -vis Deep Blue? But Gary Kasparov versus Deep Blue 1997, that's the story we're told. The story we're told is that we're already inferior. The story we're told is that mere brilliance is overshadowed by the tech giants with the giant checks. The truth is that computers are like the rest of us. They have to fail 10,000 times before they succeed. They fail faster. When they succeed, they feel nothing. For all I respected machine learning, I was never, like some, struck dumb with awe. I knew how much failure was going on behind the scenes, how little room I had for jealousy. I knew failure. I think that's why I made such a good programmer. But I see the way you look at me. I hear the impatient tap of paper and pen. If you wanted some personal essay on Russians and robots, you'd have gone to the David Sedaris column in Sensible Chuckle magazine. You want to hear of this implied failure. You've never heard failure and Annabelle Eichner uttered in the same breath. Black boxes saw to bat. Let me take you to a time before black boxes and before Annabelle Eichner. My birth occurred during the fall of the Soviet Union. It turned out that one of those events would be more historically significant than the other. I know that it's fashionable nowadays to begin biographical material either too early or too late. Those who favor the great man theory of history believe that titans and human forms shape single-handedly their generations and therefore begin their biographies at the titan's parentage, sure that some inherent mixture of nature and nurture came together to inform the essential being of the great man. And by man, I do mean man. Those who favor the movements and forces school of human nature believe that the so-called titans are, in reality and in Tolstoy's words, slaves of history, wherein the great movers and shakers are themselves shaken and moved by events and opinions completely out of their control. I, instead, favor Prometheanism. The Titan Prometheus gave humanity the gift of fire. Imagine that great man's surprise when he 
handed off the burning torch to movements and forces, only to see that torch used to build a modern civilization that doesn't believe in the great man Prometheus anymore. Oops. That's what a gift is. It's relinquished. Rather, it's supposed to be. You'll make me sound better than I really sound, won't you? Like, make my speech a little bit more than normal speaking? Yes. Well, you can leave this part in so that people, like, at least know that they're getting up the guess eat up version. You know what I mean? So, let's not talk too much about my parents. I'll only say what people already know. One was an eye doctor, the other worked with teeth. I had siblings, too, a brother and a sister, both younger. Those are people who brought me into the world. They're not the ones who decided what I'd do with myself. I wouldn't blame them, if I were you. I remember a few key moments about my childhood. The keys do not inevitably lead to the development of black box technology, but I can't really think of that tech without thinking of the keys. There was the illicit computer, the bike accident, and the money. So first off, the money is pretty easy to figure out. Have you ever heard of the Ameristocracy? I can't remember if I heard the term somewhere or if I made it up. In any case, it existed. I grew up in the American Midwest, a place even Midwesterners have difficulty defining. I grew up in a town where there had been three stoplights during the boom times. The loss of the third was treated with the gravity of an end times event. I say this not to denigrate the place, but to tell you that there were clear and important hierarchies between one and one's neighbors. No one would ever admit to being part of America's aristocracy. This is a nation where presidential candidates broadcast their humble upbringings, a nation where rulers tout their love of alcohol and low art. These things are seen to be markers of a good leader. America is a nation where poverty and hardship are considered relatable and notable and American, which cannot be further from the truth. Americans are rich in their minds. They're so mentally rich that when I say America, you know that I'm talking about a country rather than continents. They're so mentally rich that they believe that the only reason poor people exist is that they don't want to be rich. Americans love a rich person who pretends to be poor. They need to believe that the two classes are completely alike. That way, the rich get to believe that they earn the riches, and the poor get to believe that they might earn riches one day. By the time my mother gave birth, I was already nine months ahead of everyone else. My mother had access to time off, to advanced medicine, to the education and effort required to produce a healthy child. I came via cesarean section, a process that would have been deadly to both myself and my mother without modernity and wealth. We both lived. Don't you see? I was cheating the system before my first breath. As the daughter of two medical professionals I never wanted for the necessities, I was part of the aristocracy, and I could have gotten away with thinking myself normal, too, if it hadn't been for the rural Midwest. Without private schools or clubs that require one to own a yacht, I had to mix with the poor. Why did their houses smell strange? Why didn't they come to the movies? Why hadn't they vacationed outside the Midwest? After enough of these questions, my parents decided to help me better integrate with poverty. They made me get a summer job at age 12. They forced me to volunteer. <laughs> they recognized my head start and moved to the finish line. I know I wasn't what people think of when they think of the rich, but I knew I was better than almost anyone I knew. I would have dreams at night where I was a white shark in a pond full of guppies. 
In the dream, if I made a wrong move or opened my mouth to breathe, I'd swallow the guppies whole or smash them against the rocks. And worse, I'd like it. I would feed my ego, feed the sense that I was bigger and better. Oh, poor you. That's what my college roommate, Kelly, said. Come to think of it, she was a historian too, you know. The American university is the great equalizer of the rich. All the people who could afford a good childhood, who felt able to take out loans or pay up front. All those special little aristos gathered into one university and suddenly discover that they were a shark in a pond full of sharks. Kelly and I were assigned to one another by the university. It's almost as if they guessed that we both suffered from undiagnosed mental illnesses. I crashed my bike when I was a teenager. I got a concussion. I don't remember ever feeling depressed before that crash, but maybe I'm misremembering. No one in my family showed signs of clinical depression, so how did I end up different? I can only think of a few things. One is the bike crash, the short blackout. That's the funny thing about depression, you don't actually dislike the things that might have led to your depression. You don't actually dislike depression. Quite the opposite. I'm happy that whatever made me myself made me myself. Even though my selfhood gives happiness a kind of vaporous, elusive definition. And then there's that homemade computer. So me and Kelly are assigned to one another as roommates. And she does that thing that everybody does when they see my old computer. They recite all the vowels. First it's ooh, and then it's ew. I'll admit my computer was ugly when it came out, and it came out near the dawn of time. It's the kind of computer that had to deal with Y1K, if you catch my drift. Yuck, 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 yuck. So, after Kelly gets over the fact that her programmer roommate has a computer that was invented contemporary with Henry VIII, she says, So, your computer is Amish. Is that some sort of hipster thing? I tell her the truth. I tell her that my parents chose it for me and for a reason quite specific. I tell her that if there is one constant in the universe, it's that any platform capable of doing so will inevitably house pornography. Don't believe me? Hand a child a calculator and see how long it takes for them to type 5318008 and like turn it upside down, you know. <laughs> Kelly and I laugh together. I didn't tell her that I'd taken almost all of the computer's vital components and swapped them for components in my job shadowing. It turns out that a server farm barely notices a 5% dip in hardware efficiency if it's paired with a 10% rise in software efficiency. It was like that with all my unpaid internships. I found a way to get paid. Now, firmly on Kelly's good side, I broached the question that's been keeping me up three nights in a row. The forms gave my real name, didn't they? Would you rather be called something else? They wiped my slate clean at 18, but it was still the first months of university, and 18 hadn't come yet. I wonder sometimes if Kelly ended up researching my old name. I wonder if she found my criminal record. Anna Bell Eichner, I said. Anna Bell Eichner, Kelly said. She said it just like that. Annabelle. All one word. I don't know why I said the middle name in the first place. Nobody introduces themselves by their middle name. I didn't bother correcting her. I didn't want to get off on the wrong foot with someone over a mistake that I could correct at some future date. This is when I, meaning Neil, first stopped Annabelle Eichner. 
listen, I said, I've gotten every word of yours from the moment we walked in. I held up the legal pad, which looked to all the world like chicken scratch, if the chicken had been freebasing cocaine. Yes, Annabelle Eichner said. In other words, your job. Is there some specific reason that I have to do this job? Is there some reason you don't just feed your life events into a black box? What would happen if I did? She asked. Nobody knows. I pointed at her with the Twillery Uniball director. You are the only person on earth with even the slightest idea of what goes on in black boxes. Every attempt to dissect those little computers, if they even are computers, is interrupted by bombastic auto-sabotage. I've seen black boxes solve age-old mysteries in seconds. I've watched black boxes bring systems to levels of organization and efficiency previously thought impossible. Black boxes daily make fields of industry and research redundant, including, unfortunately, my own. Yes, Annabelle said. So? So, I hissed. I am irrelevant to this or any other task. Movements and forces will churn their inexorable path into the future with or without me. My only purpose in life is to witness the march of the black boxes, the clever and perfect computer, the cause of and solution to all of humanity's woe. And? I stood. Do I amuse you, Annabelle? Does it please you to know what I'll say before I say it? Do you take comfort in treating me as the human equivalent of a TV rerun? Quite the opposite. She traced her finger once in an orbit around her head. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. I've seen the parts already played, the lines already spoken for. Does that strike you as fun, particularly? It must be. Why? Because you created the clever computer, because you're the one in control. Annabelle met my eyes. I swear to you, not a muscle of her face showed anything like emotion. Yet... It is remarkable what one can make of a blank slate. My mind raced, trying to fill the gaps. Here was the foremost mind of our age, engaged in a simplistic recitation of the past. It was too simple, too humble. I cannot describe why. Apropos of that lack of complexity, I knew Annabelle was trying to tell me something. Tomorrow at ten in the morning, she said. Can I expect you? May I, I corrected and you can expect anything. Expectation was a luxury I didn't have. My heart fluttered with adrenaline all the way home, desperate to unfold the secrets Annabelle was begging me to discover. Chapter 7 Those first hours are lost to me now. I know that I was being recorded. I know that I could go back and look at what those videos want me to remember. I prefer it this way. I prefer those hours to be lost. I knew the girl at the library front desk. Let's call her Sue. It was after hours, but I flashed her my faculty card like a badge. I'll let myself out, I said. I didn't exactly tell her to go home and leave me alone in the library, but that was the message Sue received. Sue was not a good librarian. You can see now why I might not want to use the girl's name or description. So far as you know, she's not a girl at all, but instead, a boy named Sue. The library was extensive. Too extensive, in the opinion of the university digitizers and accountants. University meetings were always filled with horror stories of expenses, silverfish, and terror of terrors, those without homes who use the library to keep from freezing to death outside. But the library had three things that I wouldn't trade for the world. 
The first thing they had was a foul-smelling basement corner where they kept the old physical card catalog. It took about half an hour to find the books I wanted. Half of that time was spent dusting off cardboard bank boxes and sneezing. The second thing they had were books. Why, of course, you say. But here's the thing about books. They don't know they're being read. Even Ron Prometheus and Ron Heracles don't know that a book is being read if you don't check out your books. That leads me to the library's third indispensable quality. A second story fire escape. Yeah, I stole a few books that night and I stole down the fire escape. Aside from a stumble down those last few steps and a resulting face full of gravel, I was under the impression that I'd gotten away without consequence. Whether or not I got away clean, I can't help but be thankful that I believed myself undetected. I would not have gone forward if I'd known the true powers I faced. Fortune favors the bold. And what else are the bold but fools? I did not get a single nanosecond of sleep that night. The following morning found me somehow both exhausted and exhilarated. I watched the passing telephone lines dip up and down like sine waves. It suddenly occurred to me that black boxes controlled the electrical grid. I looked down. Black boxes controlled the driverless vehicle, taking me to AI's house. Of all the books I'd read that evening, the most vital ended up being a drab olive library-bound book with title and pages and timeless Garamond type. The book was a history of the black box revolution in medicine and claimed in an especially poignant moment that Annabelle's mother had died in childbirth. During her recitation, Annabelle had gone out of her way to claim otherwise. There were only three possible explanations for this discrepancy. One, that Annabelle was mistaken or lying. The reasons to lie were many. Maybe she didn't want to talk about her mother's death, or wanted to pretend to others that such a tragedy had never occurred. But to lie when the truth could be so easily discovered? I couldn't believe that Annabelle would be so stupid. Possibility 2. That the book was mistaken, or lying. It was just a book, after all. People can lie, and liars can write. But this book had been fact-checked by black boxes. The book had cited other post-BB references, and if my memory served, it had heard of Annabelle's dead mom before. For me to know such inane trivia, it must be common knowledge. The third possibility... Yes, the third and most interesting possibility. There was no part of my world that was not dependent on the inerrancy of the black boxes. Solutions given by the black box had never been disproven. Black box sciences were taken as gospel. I'd often spoken against the blind faith approach to run Prometheus and run Heracles, but my actions spoke louder. I'd never realized until that day how much faith I really had in the BBs. I trusted my bank account to the BBs. I trusted BBs with my health care and my gas bill. Until the day I met Annabelle Eichner, I'd lived my life with the subconscious assumption that the BB systems were flawless and benevolent, the same way I'd assumed gravity would keep me stuck to the earth. What if the inerrancy that was so vital to our modern world turned out to be incorrect? It would be like turning off gravity. Worse. I did something then that I hadn't done in months. I buckled my seatbelt. We arrived precisely at 10 a.m. I had to make a conscious effort not to run inside. 
Cardiff introduced the two of us again. I wondered if he thought that Annabelle had forgotten me. He left us alone right away this time, and I followed Annabelle to the kitchen. She had something cooking. It smelled wonderfully unhealthy. Bacon-wrapped ribeye. She pointed to the little, bloody top pucks of meat on the griddle. I like meat in the morning. Protein lasts. You cook for yourself? I asked. I'm surprised. Why? She flipped over the two steaks. They hissed as though still alive. You're not a pro. You could hire the world's best and not miss the cash. Must everything be efficient, optimized? Must we delegate and automate away every pleasant human activity? Is that what this is about? I asked. You're living some little house on the prairie fantasy because you think it's more human? She moved the bacon-wrapped steaks off the griddle and onto a scratched china plate. I sighed. I think I know what you're up to. Do you always say what you think? Should I? Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. I shook my head. All these corny quotes. All if people write things down, I think they ought to be quoted. She grabbed two pairs of cutlery and motioned to a small window-side table. I'm not trying to impress you. If I did, I wouldn't have said half of what I said yesterday. To all appearances, Annabelle wasn't going to indulge my theories. Besides, there was a new legal pad on the table, and a new pen, the Hollander Jet Silver. It was the kind of pen that could have been a Playboy centerfold back when Playboy showed pornography. I don't know if that exaggeration works or not, but basically I'm trying to say that I found the pen attractive. I took out my red dye and rolled it on the table. Hmm, Annabelle said. Have you assigned your numbers yet? No, I lied. My die assignments were 1 equals happy, 2 equals surprise, 3 equals fear, 4 equals anger, 5 equals disgust, 6 equals sadness. These six emotions were broad, broad enough to be applied to any situation. I rolled a 5. I decided not to eat any steak, just to throw a wrench into the works of probability. Between mouthfuls, Annabelle launched into her second account. Chapter 8 Account 2 by Annabelle Eichner I wasn't kidding about that old computer. My parents bought the junker because it couldn't display anything more complicated than the capital letters of the alphabet. The computer fought me for the first week. The issue was that the control key was stuck. Almost every letter in command was stuck in its alternate mapping. So, for the first week, I couldn't type exe without running into an error. Eventually, I found that the run command could stand in for exe. From there, I experimented until I found a way to manually map every letter from itself, typed as its alternate, then got the alternate mapped back onto the original key. See how boring computer stuff is to talk about? I just made that whole story up. It's fake. I could have just said, the computer was hard to use, but every time I tell somebody a fake computer story, they get all bleary-eyed. Nobody who isn't a programmer gives a crap about programming. There aren't any puzzles left. Everything human beings could find fascinating about computer programming has been filed off in order to make the art into a science. I know. I've lied about two other computer stories so far, and I won't tell you which two. I helped jargonize the business. I helped to separate the programmers from the masses. Now that the black box is around, there's no need for any programming. It'd be like learning the abacus when there's a calculator around. 
there are no middlemen who can explain to you my advanced skills. It's like if a man told an ant about toasters that burn your name into a piece of bread. It wouldn't even translate. That said, by the time I was in high school, I had gravitated towards my gifts at the computer and gravitated away from everything else. I was super extremely online. I was not quite grounded in the world of life life. Maladaptive types will always gravitate online. And don't let online communities tell you any different. The further one has to run away from most of society, the further they'll get into the internet, and vice versa. Luckily, my parents found out just how far I disappeared into the recesses of culture after I ended up in court. They always blame themselves, I'm not sure why. I made my own choices. They were good parents. So good that by therapy and counseling and long walks in the woods, they dragged me out of the pits I'd been in and got me ready to go to university. Anna Bell Eichner. I thought I'd distanced myself from my past using that name. I'd have never guessed that the name would do more for my parents than it ever would for me because, wonder of wonders, renaming myself Annabelle did not alter my inherent nature. My first clue that I wasn't fully recovered came in the person of two guys in my competing class. Orientation made sure that I knew the boys' names, Mel and Keith, as well as their home states, Alaska and Massachusetts. Having sized up everyone in our class, the three of us recognized the objective fact that we were the aristocracy of this group, and that peerage with anyone outside of our triumvirate would be charity on our part. Keith was utterly cool. He was the kind of guy every girl falls in love with, but who can't fall in love with any girl. I don't mean that he wasn't attracted to women. I merely mean that the same aloof lack of empathy that made him sexy also made him unsexily selfish. I was smitten. Mel was a homeschooler with shaggy hair and lazy stubble, zero social skills, and a few semi-autistic twitches and quirks. A brilliant dweeb. I was also smitten. I found every social interaction with these two to be a sort of mental wrestling match. That's the funny thing about trying to please people. They suspect they're being played. Even if your intentions are sincere, aiming to please ironically strikes others as manipulative and greasy. I tried to be cool to Keith. I don't know what reaction I'd been hoping for, but cool indifference was the most embarrassing and most frequent outcome. I tried to be smart with Mel. That was worse. Mel was smart in ways I wasn't. He had the opposite disposition as Keith. It was less that he cared too little and more that he cared too much. Constantly obsessed with the hidden meaning behind my every word and gesture. Once, he asked if I had come to a conclusion on the thing that I most hated about him. He twice informed me that he felt like he was making me uncomfortable, which was true, but the voicing of which made me even more uncomfortable. Mel and Keith were themselves around one another. Their friendship was effortless, while my sweaty desire to please only resulted in their seeing my friendship as so much work. Not two weeks into my first classes, I was alone again. Take consolation in that. You may live with bad people from time to time, but bad people are always having to live with themselves. I don't say this to be pitied. I control half the world's treasure. I make sure that everyone on this planet is cared for. I'm hailed like the second coming of Jesus Christ for Christ's sake, and if anyone has cause to be happy, it's me. 
Everyone always ends up wanting to have become what they ended up becoming. People are funny like that. They're always wanting to be who they currently are, resisting change while also resisting regression, claiming that anyone who isn't as they currently are is maladapted. So I'm not sad about that dark time. It led me to chase light. What I'm about to tell you has been suppressed. If black boxes are ever replicated, they'll have competition. Their genesis is therefore a close-guarded secret. If you try to tell others what I'm about to tell you, you'll be disbelieved and discredited. The black boxes won't silence you. They won't need to. They'll drown you out with alternative theories. They'll elevate your story to prominence by fraudulence, tainting your truth like fruit from a poisonous tree. But do write it down, won't you? Kelly came back from class one day in a state. She could do nothing besides sigh and take in breath to fuel the next sigh. She hustily slammed our door, went to our already stained futon, and sort of like became one with the futon. That good, huh? I asked. I didn't stop typing. Eh, Kelly said. College students are expert in avoiding good conversation with their roommates. Boys? I'm not a pedophile. I don't date boys. She... Neil, have you ever seen the end of One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest? That's the way she pressed the pillow against her face. Is it bros? I guessed. Class, she sighed again. History. It's not what I thought it was. What isn't what you thought it was? Huh? Like, is it ancient alien stuff? I guessed. It's just... Kelly paused to sigh again. Why is it always the same facts? I know it's an intro course, but like... We're covering the same things we did as fifth graders, but this time we're learning the suppressed or woke version. It's like all of academia's Howard Zinn versus Winston Churchill. We never learn anything new, we just recontextualize and repoliticize everything past historians wrote. It's all opinion. It's all guessing at motives. Well, what would you prefer? I asked. Sutton who? Sutton who? Lansa Meadows, the ruins of Templo Mayor, that car park where they found Richard III. I don't want to rewrite history. I want to unearth it. Discover it. So be an archaeologist. And set my sail against the winds of fate? Nobody knows about discoveries until they discover them. We could be in a dry spell. Could be my chosen field isn't the field that gets discovered. I might as well drop out of college and buy a metal detector. She sighed for the last time. Speaking of, how's work on your fossil? Perfect. I'm putting you all in a database. Hit list? I slid my rolling chair back from my desk. I stared into my monitor's depths. I'm trying to figure out how people become friends. Kelly began juggling the pillow while lying on her back. Most of us just figure it out. I have this trick where I ask somebody about themselves and then compare my own experience to theirs. They fall for it every time. I'm not talking about individual friends, I said. Think about friendship on a macro scale. There's no substantial difference between the freshmen of last year and this year. The juniors used to be sophomores, used to be freshmen. What's your point? I gestured to a pillow. Why do you expect the pillow to fall every time you throw it into the air? Gravity. No, you know because it's come down every time before now. You know by the history of gravity 
the gravity exists and likely will continue being like it's always seemed to be. I nodded to my computer. What if I had data on every friendship of every person in our school? Using the data on juniors and seniors, I could map projections of the friendships the sophomores and freshmen will likely experience. I could skip entirely the friendships that are the least likely to last the test of time. The pillow halted. Social media gives me everything, I continued, and this wouldn't just be for my benefit. There are social stocks and bonds to consider. You know the ring by a spring trope, right? Dudes propose before they graduate. If we were really invested in landing a great guy despite our qualifications, the optimal time to begin a relationship is fall of junior year. If the male partner is willing to give at least a year to a relationship, he will likely feel uncomfortable starting fresh in senior year. By the time his last semester comes up, he'll be staring down a fork in the road, propose or graduate single. Someone using this formula would, irrespective of all other factors, have a 30% chance of matrimony on the very first date. There was silence for a moment. Unnerved, I looked over to Kelly. I know, it's... Shh. She stared at our white popcorn ceiling. Shh. Wait. There was another moment of silence. Kelly sat bolt upright. Show me. I didn't think you were that serious about boys, or bros for that matter. No, no, not that. Show me. Show me how you chart that. Well, I haven't fully. I'm starting with assumptions. Did the assumptions map to reality? Yeah. Then it's not an assumption. It's a model. Kelly rose and, still hugging the pillow to her chest, watched the monitor over my shoulder. I shrugged and got back to it. Kelly watched in silence, bless her. I almost forgot that she was there until she dropped the pillow. I looked back at her. Hmm? That's it, she said. A new science. Hmm? She leaned back against our bunk bed. Why join a game in progress? Why not start our own game? We'd be the best at it, by default. Because we'd be the only one playing. At first, that's called a head start. Kelly bit her nails, an endearing habit. What's the new game? I asked. Kelly nodded to my computer. You're trying to predict the future. Why not predict the past? Because it already happened, I said. Well, think of it. You could come up with current behavioral models and map them back onto what we know of the past. We could discover things we don't know. Fill in the blanks. For instance? Well, I don't know. We don't know the blanks yet. I nodded. The only problem is it's non-falsifiable. Unscientific. That leaves you with history that can be reinterpreted. The exact problem that you started with. Kelly's eyes lit up. Documents. Huh? Documents, legal records, the names in the church Bible. There were social networks and data before computing. And for the first time in the conversation, I saw where Kelly was going. Okay, I said. Give me a historical event. Any historical event. Hmm, uh, okay. The uh, Salem Witch Trials. I need every document. Hmm? Every document made by, or concerning, any human being who set foot in Salem back when they were burning people. Well, they didn't burn people. See... That's why I need you, I said. I motioned to the door. Shoo, hurry. Kelly nodded and did as she was told. I realize now that there was something missing from my friendship model. There is nothing like shared purpose to ignite a friendship. There's nothing like a relationship to ignite shared purpose. 
I wonder now which came first, my first real purpose or my first real friend. But purpose and friendships are ends, not means. It was the means to those ends that ended up costing me everything. After some knuckle-cracking, I went digging. There were a few companies back in those days that housed what we used to call big data. Imagine knowing everything. Imagine if everyone everywhere volunteered to be tracked and studied every second of every day. Imagine if every movement and thought that wasn't volunteered was stolen either by the government or an industry the government wouldn't regulate. That's what big data was. Now, knowing everything isn't actually all that useful in and of itself. It would be impressive to know the location of every pimple on every middle school boy's left butt cheek, but without some sort of action plan, it's just trivial trivia. And that's if you can process the data. Some big data just sat idle on a spreadsheet. Nobody knew what to do with it. Which was weird because the data was, for all intents and purposes, stolen from people who didn't know any better. I saw no problem with stealing it back. In high school, I'd done this by fishing. Online social manipulation isn't difficult. It gets even easier when you're an underage girl. I won't go into every detail, but every American tech company employs at least one ephibophile. If temptation doesn't work, blackmail will. Having someone by the balls turns out to be a very appropriate term for extortion. The problem with shaking people down is that eventually you'll run into someone who's just stupid enough to fight back. When the police came knocking, I had no idea which of the pedos had fibbed, so I had a nuclear option prepared. With a single keystroke, every single man who had knowingly solicited a minor got doxxed that night. With the press of a button, their true selves were revealed to the world. I didn't feel bad about that. I do regret it. They would come back to bite me, you see. I had a new lease on life, and I wasn't about to risk it on something so manual. I was also, at that point, no longer a minor. I started with the men who I hadn't doxxed. What is doxing? It's releasing someone's name and nefarious deeds to the public and letting shame culture do the rest. I figured that these men who, creeps though they were, had decided to actually cut off contact the second they'd learned my age, they might still be of use to me. I had names, phone numbers, email addresses, social profiles. With that info, you're only one or two steps away from hijacking someone's identity. Some careless aunt or bank employee is always happy to help you recover your forgotten information. The only reason I couldn't open a phone book and access everyone's social security number is the sheer amount of work it would take. By the end of that first night, I only had three ironclad online personas. Let's call them Ed, Edward, and Eddie. Picture each of these online personas as a bullet. To hit a target, you've got to fire a bullet. However, the bullet makes a lot of noise, and once it's fired, it's gone. The second I use Ed's persona to accomplish a goal, Ed's cell phone is going to start chirping. That person is burned. He'll change his passwords in a minute or less. Even worse, Ed might alert authorities to the noise. There's a possibility that the police will never care to track down where those shots are coming from, but the more shots you take, the harder it is to ignore you. I fell asleep for about an hour. I had a dream that I can't remember now. 
I wouldn't put stock in meaningful dreams anyway. Especially not ones I'm relating to my biographer years after the dubious fact. I woke up. It might have had something to do with the large folio slamming down on my desk. Everything, Kelly mumbled. She rolled into her bed, fully clothed, and fell asleep before her head hit the pillow. Blinking away the fog, I opened and browsed the collected documents. Some of the papers were still hot from the printer. There were many books that would prove useful overviews, but those stood on legions of source material. It was then that I knew my task was impossible. I had three bullets and trillions of targets. I fell asleep again. I had another dream. I don't ask that you put stock in this dream. I'm not going to insist that it foretells some future reality or interprets the past. I'm just going to tell you the dream and leave the doubt up to you. I dreamed that I was fishing. First, I dreamed of fishing with a hook on a line on a fishing pole. Second, I dreamed of casting a net. Third, and again, maybe I'm just making this up years after the fact. Third, I dreamed of a monstrous shark who would do only what I told him to do. I dreamed that the shark destroyed every boat and predator and let the sea fill to its fullness with fish until the world drowned in carp. I don't actually know what a carp is, but there were lots of fish is what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that the dream meant anything, but when I woke up, I knew what to do. I missed a few classes over the following days. In other classes, I showed up, sat in the back, and typed away at a machine I called my burner laptop. At the first sign of trouble, I would literally burn my laptop, but only after drowning, freezing, crushing, and subjugating it to harsh language. I'm kidding. Burning is fine on its own. I'd done it before, but only after rumblings in a certain company's internal emails. Even now, with the power of the world at my fingertips, I'm still hesitant to reveal the company name. I'll just say that the company emails took place via their own email client. What's an email client? Well, just go I mean, just uh, search engine it. I've never been able to properly trace a line directly from Salem witch trial research to founding a computing revolution. But again, the means were more important than the end. The tool I needed to parse decades of reading into something as simple as a line graph was nothing other than the entire modern tech industry. I shot my first bullet inside of a health and fitness class. Under the mask of the Eddie persona, I convinced one of Eddie's underlings that I, Eddie, had a rather embarrassing problem. Eddie, who was me, remember, had totally goofed, losing the webmaster permissions for their most valuable client. Eddie demanded that the underling transfer his permissions to Eddie now, right now, quick, before you have any chance to double-think this decision. Once I had the permissions, I told the underling not to talk to anybody about this, promising rewards for silence and punishment. Should he foolishly open his mouth one damn millimeter vis-a-vis -vis this issue, even to me, who was, remember, Eddie. And this is why black boxes took over the world, Neil. Human beings are, as a whole, pretty predictable. That is, until they think they're being predicted. Then they'll do the exact opposite, which is also predictable. Eddie's smart underling got suspicious. Suspicion was the plan. When Eddie and his underling changed every password on every one of their websites, 
I was there, virtually looking over their shoulder. Not only did they fall for my trap, they did so with the blissful assurance that they were more secure than ever. It was like they'd been robbed by the woman installing their home security system. My one bullet had become 20. Another concept, cloud computing. Basically, the idea behind cloud computing is that you rented rather than bought a server. Servers are like any machine. If they're not running, they're a liability rather than an asset. There's very little financial difference between an idle server and a brick, aside from the fact that the brick won't be obsolete in four to five years. So anyway, in cloud computing, a company rents out their unused computing power. With access to Eddie's clients, I was able to artificially boost their computing power and storage requirements. When the cloud lent out the surplus capacity, some of it happened to fall off the truck and into my growing hoard. By the time I was finished with Eddie, I had something of a war chest. It was time to shop. Edward, my second bullet, proved an enthusiastic rube. He was in charge of a monumental trove of data. Remember how I mentioned the uselessness of knowledge? Tech companies agree with me. That's why they left it in the hands of the Edwards of the world. For an analyst, Edward had a pretty dim view of private property. He pirated movies and books. His rationale was as follows. Dude, bro, straight up, it isn't stealing. I make a copy of the media and keep the copy. If anything, I'm adding value. Hey, bud, is there a word for taking something without the owner's permission and not paying for it? You can only make a free copy of something that somebody worked really hard to create. That's why, when I took Edward's data, I was stealing. Well, not really. Scamming might be more accurate term. I told Edward that I was running a tech startup, and I needed test data. I offered him free backup storage and processing power. Edward was ecstatic. See, he just so happened to need a surplus of both due to his Bitcoin addiction. Now, if you don't remember that particular pyramid scheme, it went like this. Use electricity-hungry computers to mine fake currency while creating a very real and tangible greenhouse gas. After the currency was found to be traceable and slow, proponents made arguments about how Bitcoin was, like, freedom from the government, bro, enslaved to the no doubt more benevolent Bitcoin hoarders. Never you mind that a lack of inflation means that investing is always worse than saving. Never you mind that until a government collects Bitcoin in taxes, there's no inherent need for your currency. Never you mind that government can shred Bitcoin like tissue paper. Never you mind that it's the government that backs up fiat currency with the only real currency that matters. Guns. Anyway, Edward chose to give up his data, which was an asset, for the power to mine currency, a placeholder for assets. He felt that he wasn't losing anything. How could making a copy of something make the original any less valuable? By the way, have you heard that Bitcoin caps the devastating effects of inflation? Why are you laughing? That left Ed. Having amassed the power, storage, and data of a multi-billion dollar tech mogul, I approached Ed and offered a monkey's paw. Ed was the least stupid of the three. That's why I paid him. See... I already had every tool I needed. I already had all the raw materials needed to build my dream. I just needed somebody to make it. The last time I saw Ed, he called me a vampire. 
Do you think I'm a bad person, Neil? I was. Do you think that I took advantage of these people? I did. Whether I remain that evil person or not is the last great mystery of my life. If forgiveness doesn't exist, there is at least recompense. I've paid back everything I stole, with interest. Money can't buy you love, but it can salve your conscience. Ed handled my workforce. He saw immediately what I was trying to do. Ed was a vampire too, though he was my thrall. We repeated my three bullets approach. Anyone could do it, given the right tools. First, we'd target power and place. Then, we'd target people. With people, power, and place in hand, we'd have an ever-expanding empire, a pyramid scheme with me at the top, and Ed is my second. What Ed didn't know is that I was building the pyramid into a creature, a great mass of humanity formed together like a hive, a group intelligence to form the greatest mind this world has ever known. There were things I didn't know about Ed at the time, but just knowing isn't all that important if, in the end, you don't know what to do with what you know. All right, that's the first one-fourth of uh, Run Prometheus, a novel by me, Paul Yoder. If you like that, please, 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 there's nothing better you could do right now than just share it with people. It's free. It's audible. People got to have something to do while they're mowing their lawn. I mean, send them this book, man. Like, it's, it's fun times. And if you don't like this thing that I'm doing, then share it with somebody as like a prank. Be like, hey, check out this cool book. And then I prank them by writing bad. Okay. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Seriously, it means a lot. If you're listening to this the day that it like freaking drops, then uh, the next episode comes out tomorrow and you'll have half a book on you. And uh, if you're listening to this in the future, you can keep listening. Just press that forward button. But don't forget to like, share, subscribe. Okay, bye.